And uh, again, good to have new people with us this morning. Let's give them a hand. We're glad that you are here. So if you're new to Revolution, we like to go through books of the Bible at a time and just study it the way it's written. And currently, we are in the Gospel of Mark. And it's been fascinating as we uh, study the remarkable life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we're, we are in chapter 12. And uh, I'm going to have you read every other slide with me. Is that okay? You all up for that this morning? Okay, I'm going to read this first one. You join me on the next one. So Mark chapter 12. It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Verse 29, read with me here. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then join me on the next slide here, verse 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And let's all read verse 33 together. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then the last verse here, verse 34 says, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. In um. Anybody know how many people have been actually walked on the moon? How many people total? Fifteen. Fifteen people. And uh, this is a picture of Apollo 15. Some of you may be old enough to remember this, where the, the lunar module, and don't fact check me on that, make sure I'm not wasn't told wrong on the 15. Um, but it is 12? Okay, so uh, good. Yeah, check that. So 12 people, a dozen people have landed on the moon. Of course, there's some people say it never happened. It's all conspiracy. They also think the earth is flat, but we can have a discussion about that if you want. Maybe you know more about me than that. One of the guys that actually walked on the, uh, the moon and was part of the lunar module that traveled around all that was James Irwin. And James Irwin actually even quoted scripture from Psalm 133 while he was on the moon. And it was pretty amazing. And what was funny was he was like a nominal Christian at this point. He really wasn't very strong in his faith wasn't very uh, close in his relationship with Jesus. But when he was on the moon, the whole thing was just kind of blowing him away as he's, he's beholding God's creation up close and personal. And he had, one of his jobs was to set up this science project to leave there on the moon. And there was a pin clip that was missing and wouldn't make this thing stand up. And he's like, one, it's like he had one job when he, you know, they spent millions of dollars to get to the moon and, and he couldn't, wouldn't do it. And he, he started praying and asking God to help him to figure out a way to fix this. And sure enough, he came with a makeshift plan. So it stood up and was able to c- collect the radioactivity and you know, whatever it's supposed to do. And that was like the beginning of his walk with the Lord that he became closer to God. And when he got back, after a while, he resigned from being an astronaut and started a ministry to share the gospel around the world using his experience with NASA as a, as a platform. And this is what he said that was fascinating. 
He said Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. And up until that point, him walking on the moon was like the most important thing in his life. And then he realized, wait a minute, 2,000 years, God became human flesh and lived amongst us. And that's way more important than 12 people walking on the moon. So we're, we're going to use that as a reminder this morning. We, were, we are studying the, the short life of Jesus Christ, but it was a remarkable life. And that's way more important to think that God walked on this earth. And here, here's the, uh, here's the, the thing that we have to remember, is someday Jesus is going to walk on this earth again. He's going to set up his kingdom. All this mess we see in the news all week long, all this trash that's happening, and just like, can anybody do anything to stop this? The answer is no. At least not completely, but Jesus Christ can. And so he's remarkable, and that's who we're studying this morning. And so here it says one of the scribes. Now, if you've noticed in the past few years of Jesus' life, you know, from age 30 to 33, as he's traveling around, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are ganging up on him. Very few of them, other than like Nicodemus and this guy who's unnamed, have the courage to talk to Jesus one-on-one. They always wanted to gang up on him. And just to give you context here, this is the last couple days of Jesus' life. And so they are really hitting him hard. They're trying to find a reason for him to say something that's blasphemous so they can kill him. But this time, just after you know, the Pharisees tried to trap him, the scribes tried to trap him, his questions, and he answered, blew them away. Now just one guy comes up. And some people think this is that he was sent by the Pharisees. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. If you read Matthew's account of the same story, it sounds like there was a meeting, and the next thing you know, this guy's showing up, and they try to make a connection. I think that that's possibly true, but I think by the time he gets there and sees what's happening, he's no longer trying to trap Jesus. He's being an honest seeker in this situation. So he's one of the scribes whose job was to study the Scripture. That was their full-time job. They were basically lawyers who studied the law of God. And he came up and he heard them that the disciples and the Pharisees and Jesus all having this dispute going on. And then he says, seeing that Jesus answered them well. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say hearing, he's seeing. And of course, he's not talking about just with physical eyes, he's talking about with spiritual eyes. It's like when someone tells you something and you hear what they're saying, but you don't understand, but all of a sudden you go, oh, now I see what you're saying. It's a reference to comprehension. It's now light bulb moment. It's coming on. It's like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. And he's seeing it by Jesus' answers to them, that he's answering them well. And he's like, wow, this guy really does have the answers. And of course, you know what? That's been happening since age 12. Remember what happened at age 12 with Jesus? He got left behind, you know, home alone, like the Christmas story, right? So the families traveled in caravans, and, and sometimes the men would have one section of women and, you know, uh, behind because the men would go on ahead and make sure there wasn't trouble. And so Mary thought Jesus was with Joseph up ahead and with the camels up ahead. And Joseph thought Jesus, anybody left a kid behind before? Anybody? Go ahead and admit it. Okay. Anyway, Mary and Joseph did. And they traveled a full day without Jesus. And they stopped for water or something like, hey, so how's Jesus doing? I thought he was with you. You know, no, he's not with you. And then, so now they have to travel one day back, and then they look for a full day. So how many days has Jesus been missing? Three days, which is like a foretaste of his burial, right? How many days was Jesus gone in the tomb? Three days, right? So, but where do they find Jesus? He's in the temple, and he's asking and answering questions, and all the priests are blown away. 
This 12-year-old is amazing. You know, of course, he was that way all along. But he, he's manifesting all this divine knowledge that he has in the temple. And here he's doing it again. And this one scribe is impressed with him. But the question is, why only one? Why are they not all totally amazed with Jesus and like bowing down at his feet and going, you are amazing. You know, we are blinded by our own sin. We have our own agenda. We want our life to be this way. And if we can squeeze Jesus in as an, a nice little addition to our life, that's great. But Jesus doesn't want to be a nice little addition to your life. He wants to be the most important addiction of your life to where you cannot function without him, that you love him so much. And so, and then, so he asks this question. I believe it's, it's, a, it's a great question here. He says, which commandment is the most important of all? And, and this was a common belief amongst most of the Jews, but there was some dispute as which commandments were more important than the others. But the whole idea of one being more important than another, register that in your little notebook in the back of your head, okay? Jesus answered him and said, the most important, so Jesus is affirming that some commandments are more important than others, okay? Hold on to that thought, because you'll need it here in a second. So he, quote, he quotes what's called the Shema, which the Jews prayed Every morning and every night. And even Jews today pray it four times a day. Morning, mid-morning, afternoon, and before they go to bed. I think also one at evening, depending on which, whether you're Orthodox or not. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, when Moses gave this to Israel, this was brand new theology. The whole world, which is like most of the world today, was in polytheism. Man, there's a God for the mountains. There's a God for the trees. There's a God for the stars. There's a God for the sea. There's God for everything, okay? And Israel comes out and says, no, no, there's just one God. He's not part of the trees in the wilderness, which is pantheism. He made all that stuff. There's only one true God, which was a problem because everybody was believed in plurality. That, oh, you have your God, I have mine, that's cool. You know, everybody has their own way. You all pass road you know, to the same top of the mountain, all that stuff like that. And for Israel to say, no, 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 there's only one, that not only changes their theology, it's not politically correct. Because now, if there's only one God, that means um, your God's wrong, and your God's wrong, and <laughs> your God's wrong. And the world didn't like them saying that. And that's what, that's what Rome had a big problem with when Jesus came along, and the Jews wanted to be monotheistic, one God, because they believed in, you know, the Greeks before them, all the multitudes of gods and mythology, and the Romans had their equivalents, you know, Zeus and all those things like that. And so, and that's the way it is today. If you go around saying, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere, it's all great, we'll all just hold hands and sing kumbaya, and blah, blah, blah. But when you say, no, no, Jesus is the only way, people are like, ah, that's arrogant. That is narrow-minded. How can you say that? And that's, where, that's why they crucified Jesus, because he was saying, I'm the only way to heaven. And the, the world doesn't like to hear that. But so Jesus is reinforcing that theology. But then again, he says the most important, which means there's, it's more important than other commandments. <clears throat> and then he says, that the, he, he says, adding on to this, still quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Now, what's interesting is in the Shema, in Deuteronomy, it only says three things, heart, soul, and might. But in English, it's hard to describe that one word, might. So he uses two, mind and strength. Because it's not just on what you're thinking or your physical strength. It's talking about the combination of the two. In fact, um, here it is, heart, soul, might. Okay? 
And so this is what they prayed often. But Jesus is, some people say, well, Jesus just added a fourth one. I don't think he is. I think he's using two words, or Mark is using two words to describe one so that we can get it all together. So if you, if you go through each of these, this is what it's telling us to do. First of all, to love God with all your heart means with your inmost being, your thoughts, your desires, and your feelings. In our culture, when we say your heart, we think feelings only. Follow your heart. Oh, my heart is so full. And we think feelings only. But that's last on the list. It means everything you are, everything you think, everything you desire, all that stuff. You give all those to God. Right? Isn't that what the scripture teaches us to do? To acknowledge him in all your ways and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you're like, Gary, I, I wrestle so much in life. I want these things, but I know they're not good. And I try not to do them, but I really wish I loved God more. Hey, join the party. We're all that way. We all struggle. And you will till the, you take your last breath, okay? But the more you're in the word, with, with God's word, God's people, and praying for the filling of God's Holy Spirit, then your desires slowly begin to change. They never, the evil desires never completely go away as long as you're in this sinful flesh. But when you say, God, change my desires, change my plans, change my career if you have to, do whatever you want, I love you with all my heart. And then he says to love God with all your soul. And that's just, that, that's including the physicality. It's, it, it says that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became what? A living soul. With, means all your vigor, all your vitality. means just everything you have with the energy you have as a, as a physical creature. And then the third one here, with your might, and that's why he uses two words here, because it's hard to really grasp all this, but your mind, your capacities, your strength, okay? Now, there becomes an issue when people become really old and really sick, and even life support becomes a, a factor. And the world, because they don't understand this concept here, they're like, you know, they start talking quality of life. And, and quality of life is so subjective that you do not want to put that in the hands of doctors. You don't want to put it in the hands of politicians. It needs to be our decision, okay? But they look at it and, well, they can't get up, they can't walk around, uh, they, they can't do anything. And they think the quality of life is just based on that. But let me tell you something. If, if I am, let's say I'm a quadriplegic and I can't breathe without even a respirator, but this brain is working, you know what I can be doing? I could be praying for Chris Sharp. I could be praying for someone I know who's lost. I can, not that Chris Sharp's lost. I'm going to the next subject here. Um, I could be praying for someone I just met. I could be praying for the nurses that are helping me around. I could be praying. And let me tell you something. Can you think of something that's more valuable than prayer? We think that what we do is very valuable. I know, by the way, prayer, God bless what I'm doing. Prayer is that getting God doing stuff that I can't do. And so as long as I can do that, there is quality of life there. I, I, I had a relative years ago who had a, a, a bad heart attack, left them with a really bad respiratory condition, and they were on a ventilator, unable to breathe. Okay, So the machine is breathing for them. But keep in mind that they're totally mentally alert. They didn't have a stroke or anything like that, which even then your brain still works after a stroke. It was just their heart and their lungs. And I went in there, I'm talking to them, and of course they can't breathe, but they're blinking their eyes. I'm like, do you understand what I'm saying? They're blinking their eyes, they're blinking their eyes, they're doing all that stuff. And I was there, and again, I'm not part of the immediate family, but the doctor pulls the immediate family out in the hallway and says, you know, you all need to make a decision. He, didn't, he just started pushing it. He said, you have to let me, let me know 
you know, by the end of today, whether you want to pull the plug and just let him pass away. And they're like, oh, and they start crying or whatever. And they start thinking, oh, maybe we should. He's suffering, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I could not believe my ears. And so I pulled aside the one that I was closest to and said, hey, can I talk to you? You know, after they were done. I said, you see he's alert. You see that he's blinking his eyes. And then when I pray with him, tears start flowing down his eyes. I said, he is there. He's not a vegetable. And it's only been one day and we're all ready to pull the plug? Of course, I'm not this as emotional as I am. It's all on the inside. I said, let's give this a few days and see how he does. And then you could start talking. And if you think he's suffering, then, then we could talk about that. That's a whole other subject. But he's not a vegetable. They're starting to throw the world around the word vegetable. He's in there totally conscious. And so, uh, do you know, within eight days, he was out of the hospital and lived eight more years after that? Got to see his grandkids born, everything like that. It's just, but this, we live in a death society. They want to kill the unborn, the newly born, and those on the other end of the spectrum who are just a dead weight of society and just live for all of us in the middle who are all healthy and strong. Man, you can judge a society by the way we treat the ones who can't help themselves. Anyway, I got off on a tangent there, but it was worth it. <laughs> okay, that's what it means. So all I'm saying is when you're on your deathbed, you can still love God with all your mind. And you can still be doing a whole lot more on that. So if you look at the way the three, three of the Gospels quote this verse, again, Matthew, who's speaking to a Jewish audience, so they totally understand three of them, heart, soul, and mind. But Mark, speaking to a Roman audience, does heart, soul, and he has to use two words to describe mind and strength there. And then same thing with Luke speaking to a Greek audience using another word there. You know, there, there's speaking of pet peeves, there's a lot of cliches that Christians throw around that are not a, in the Bible. <laughs> and if you're like not a Christian and you're trying to explore Christianity, I apologize that Christians can say some stupid things. Like, let me just give you a few of them. Here, here's one, this one. When God closes a door, he opens a window. That sounds so beautiful and quaint, but it's so not true. <laughs> Sometimes God locks the door, slams shut the window, and says, hey, you're at the wrong address. Please, just go away. Okay? It, it doesn't. And if you've seen the Family Camp movie, he says, that when God opens the door, when God closes the door, he opens a Chick-fil-A. But anyway, th this one here is not true at all. And there's another one. There's others that people sell all the time. You're never more safe than when you're in God's will. How'd that work out for Jesus? John the Baptist, yes, the disciples, all in the center of God's will, and it cost them their life. And did you know, you can be in the center of God's will and get cancer, and God can use that cancer to glorify God. You can be in the center of God's will and be in a car wreck. Laura was on her way to share the gospel with her dad when the car wreck took her. She was doing exactly what God wanted her to do. But God used that. And God is still using it in ways we're not even aware of. So this one also is not true. Here's another one that people say all the time. God will not give you more than you can handle. Uh, all the time. In fact, God gives you more than you can handle. So you say, God, I can't handle this. Please help me. Okay, thank you. <laughs> now you know what I wanted you to do. You wanted us to handle this together. In fact, there are many times, most of the time, where God says, hey, you just sit still let me handle this for you because this is much bigger than you are. So that one absolutely is not true. And here is my, my personal favorite to pick on because I hear this all the time and, and it's just so unbiblical and it's actually more dangerous than the, other, the others. And that is, I see this all the time. All sin is the same in God's eyes. 
that's just, that's just horrible theology. Even Batman knows that's just really, really bad theology, okay? So the, the Batman picture, you either get it or you don't. Okay, so all sins are not the same in the eyes of God. Let me give you several reasons why. Number one, first of all, forget the Bible for just a second. Just use your common sense. Are you telling me that if I steal a pencil off somebody's desk and don't return it, that is the same thing as what Hitler did to the Jews? Are you really seriously saying that all sins are the same in the eyes of God? And that God's like, oh no, it's all the same to me. I'm just stupid up here in heaven. You guys got it figured out. Are you telling me if I stand before a judge, he's going to give me the same sentence for stealing the pen as he's going to give to a mass murderer? Even in our court system, we know this makes no sense. It defies all common sense, and we really shouldn't say it. It's bad theology. Um, There are degrees of hell. Hebrews talks about worse punishment for some than others. Jesus even talked about how it's going to be worse for you than it's going to be for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment because you had me here. You saw my works and my miracles. They didn't even have a Bible to go off of. So there are degrees of hell. By the way, Satan's not there in hell torturing everybody. He's being the most tortured. Okay, He's going to be a nobody in heaven with no recognition whatsoever. And so also... There are degrees of discipline for believers. If you are a Christian and you sin, God is going to discipline you just like you do your kids to the de- proportionate to what you've done wrong. They're not all the... You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about rebuke, chasten, and scourge. There's sometimes you look at Theo, right, and just say, stop that. And he's like, okay. Then I have to smack a hand or a bottom or time out. Just stop that. Okay, great. And there's times that God does that to you. You're like drifting in the wrong direction, maybe saying something you shouldn't be saying, and the Holy Spirit says, hey, stop that. And you're like, yeah, whew, okay, walk away. <laughs> you know, and that's it, it's over. But then there's times that we're like the two-year-old going, and they're like, don't touch that. And you're like, make me, you know. And then you're like, smack on the hand. I told you to stop. Then we cry, we, we hug, and everything's good. And then there's like, you know, like grandma say, it's time to go to the woodshed, right? There's different degrees of discipline, it's really bad theology to say all sins are the same as of God because you know what you will do? You will rationalize it. Well, if they're all the same, what does it matter if I do this? I had a guy tell me that, well, Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after, you commit adultery in your heart. So I went ahead and committed it because it's the same thing. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't get AIDS from lusting in your heart. You don't get people pregnant for lusting in your heart. It's not the same thing. And your discipline's far worse in that situation. Um, and then the fourth reason amongst a hundred I could give you, but this is the one I knew one. You've heard me preach on this before, right? But this is one now, a new reason that I can say all sins not the same as God. And that is because some commandments, as Jesus just said, are more important than others. So if the most, in, if the most important commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, if it's more important than others, then guess what? Breaking some commandments is a bigger sin than others. Do you see the connection there? So, um, there, is a, there is in the Bible what's called a hierarchy of commandments. For example, if you're keeping the Sabbath, which is a good thing, but your neighbor has an ox in the ditch, you're like, oh, do I go to the temple or do I help my neighbor get an ox out of the ditch? Moses said you help them get their ox out of the ditch and you skip church that day. And so guess what? I had to break one commandment to keep the other. There's times that you're in difficult situations like that. Another one, telling the truth versus saving a life. If you're a Christian, like Corey Ten Boom, and you're harboring Jews in the walls of your house, 
and trying to protect them. And the Nazis come knock on your door and say, hey, we heard there's some Jews here. Oh, no, there's no Jews here. Why would I be around Jews? And she flat out lies to save the life of the Jews. Is she sinning? No, she's breaking one commandment to keep another. Rahab the harlot hid the thieves in the roof of her house. They came and said, hey, where are the thieves? We heard they were here. She said, well, yeah, they were here. They did what they're supposed to do. And then they left out that window. If you hurry, you'll go catch them. She just flat out lied. And guess what? She's mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame as that was a faithful act. In order to save, now, all you kids and all you husbands, do not lie to get out of trouble, okay? Okay, unless you're saving somebody's life. Okay, that's when you can do this, when you're saving someone's life or someone's in jeopardy on these situations here. So Jesus said the most important, establishing that some commandments are more important than others, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you and I can say, well, we don't believe, we're not like Hindus with tens of thousands of gods. No, we're more sophisticated. We've got cars and houses and jobs and, and physical fitness and all these other things that we are, have as our gods, Right? And so we've got to make sure that the Lord our God is our one and only focus and that he's what we're living for. And then he says the second is this, love your neighbor how? As yourself. Now, if you notice this, these two, this Shema is where we get our church's permission statement. Worship God passionately with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, which means love him genuinely. Those two things together, which is what will change the world around you. Um, but you know what? Some people in our culture, it's infected Christianity where we read this verse and we, you know what we see? Love yourself. I've heard people say this, that where, well, the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, so I need to start with loving myself so then I can learn how to love my neighbor. <laughs> You've totally missed the verse. All, when you got up this morning, who did you take care of? Yourself. You took care of you, and you know what we instinctively do, what we naturally do, and what we typically do is we think of ourselves first. And Jesus is saying, the way that you naturally do this, I want you to supernaturally think of others that way. To where you're, you go, like let's say we have, and I'm preaching to me here, let's say we have, you know, at the last Sunday of every month we have a, a, a potluck, and it's a lot of fun, and you all bring good food, and I see the last piece of coconut cream pie. I am making a beeline, I am pushing Lauren out of the way, and I'm grabbing that last piece of pie. But if I think of my neighbor as myself, I'll say, Lauren, you want a bite? <laughs> no, I let Lauren go first. I let him, I let, I let other people go first. You think of other people like you would instinctively think of yourself first. You need to change your instincts. You, and that, that's something you can't do on your own. That's, the Holy Spirit of God needs to help you think of others as being more important than yourself. You can see this selfishness as it infects our society. Like, for example, in the past, we had magazines that were very broad concepts. Time. Time magazine. This guy's not a real person, by the way. I'm not talking about him. I'm just talking about the magazine. We had a magazine really broad called Life. Life magazine. Very broad, inclusive concept. But then you see the evolution change into where it's now you're thinking about your family. This used to be a very, very popular magazine. And we got into your family. And then it just became about us. Us. This generation, us. And then it's finally devolved down to where it's self. It's no longer life or America or the national news or whatever. It's about, what about us? Or what about self? What about me? Me, me, me. And in fact, if you're a reader, I strongly recommend this book right here, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
amazing book studying the last hundred years of history in America and how we have changed so much. And I, I'm just going to give you a brief summary of it. So before, we thought of the self as a spiritual thing. God gave us a self. We are self-aware. Okay? Animals aren't even aware of themselves other than their needs, but they don't realize, hey, I've got a brain, I'm thinking, and I'm a separate self from this dog or whatever. They just kind of, it's just all about instinct and reactions. But we are very alert to ourselves and our flaws. A dog doesn't steal another dog's bone and say, man, I really feel bad. I really should self-evaluate. Should I have done that? They don't do that, okay? Dogs are amazing. They're much better than cats, but they still don't think the way that we do, okay? So, but then... A bunch of atheists came in like Maslow, Freud, and Jung who didn't believe in the spiritual side at all. They basically just psychologized the self. And we've got Christians quoting these atheists who are totally anti-Christian, anti-God and trying to evaluate one another based on this whole psychologized self and it's extremely dangerous. But here's what happened next. We psychologized the soul or the self and then we romanticize the soul or the self, where your greatest purpose in life is not to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but your greatest goal in life is to find the right one. Find that special someone that's out there just for you. And all became, and the movie started preaching this gospel that it's all about finding the right one. And that there's a certain magic one out there. And when you meet them, boom, it's just fireworks and all that stuff like that. And it all, your main purpose in life was having someone. And therefore, people who didn't have someone, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm 24 and I'm not married. All my friends are married. Woe is me. And it just became so popularized in our culture to where romance novels and movies, it's all about, it's more about romance more than anything. Romance is important. I love Tammy. She's amazing. But let me tell you something. If, if my whole life revolves around her, I'm going to be one messed up guy. And she's going to be worse than I am, okay? We need to be focused on the Lord first. But this is, so they romanticize this. And then they created what's called the plastic self. And more psych- psychologists, second generation psychologists talk about how you can form yourself and you can choose to be what you want to be and you can mold and shape your own destiny and it's all about what you want. And so therefore, because you're very moldable, you, instead of being who God destined you to be, you are who you shape yourself to be. God formed you in his image. Now you're going to form yourself in your own image of what you want to be. And they called it the plastic self. And then they went from there to the sexualized self. See, you see the progression here. And the sexualized self is, you need to discover your own identity. What are you? And so that's where we're at right now, you know. And, and there's just all kinds of stuff that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. If 30, tw- 10 years ago, if you had said, if someone had said, I'm a man who identifies as a woman, they'd be like, you need to take your medication, brother, <laughs> you know. Now it's like, oh yes, we affirm you, we support you, whatever, whatever, whatever. And now the most important identity you have is what do you identify as sexually? And it's like, um, I like sex. <laughs> I mean, is that all we should need to be saying about it? But now it's like, oh no, I am, I am a trans woman identifying as this man, whatever, when, and I'm polyamorous and I'm pan. I'm, I'm, oh my gosh. You could take something so simple and beautiful and totally destroy it and shatter it in a thousand pieces. And this is where, this is what's happening. And then here's where it's gotten worse. See, they used to say, what business of yours is it what we do in our bedroom? I was like, none. Go, do what you want to do. That's between you and God. And they would say, stay out of our bedroom, stay out of our bedroom. And now what they've done is they brought their bedroom out into the public and say, hey, affirm this. Affirm this. Here's what we do in our bedroom. Don't tell me it's wrong. In fact, you need to tell me it's okay. 
That's what they've done. It went from their bedroom to now in public, and you have to affirm me and do that. And so this, the sexualized self became the politicized self. You can't even vote. You can't even do anything without affirming what someone does in their bedroom. It's like, I thought you wanted to keep it there. No, no, because it, it never stays there. It was never about gay marriage. It was about putting a stamp of approval on whatever they're doing because they feel guilty. And they know in God's eyes it's wrong. So if, if enough people say, you're good, you're good, yay, pride, pride, good for you, we're proud of you. Then they're like, okay, now I feel better about myself. And that's what's happened. They've politicized self. So all this selfishness, here's what it's done. It's created the whole self-esteem. Philippians 2 says you should esteem others. Psychology said, no, you esteem yourself. It created now self-care. Everybody's thoughts, all people talk about. And it's like this generation, they, they drive through and pay for a $9 cup of coffee in their brand new car, and then they go to work you know, late, whatever they do, what they do, and they scroll while they're on the clock, looking at pictures of themselves, and they're like, oh man, it's been a rough week. I need to go to pedicure and do some self-care. Like, you've been taking care of yourself all week. You've been living for nobody else but yourself. And then it's all now, it's all about self-image. Do I look right? Do I, do I feel great? And just whatever. We're so absorbed and that creates more and more selfishness. We're self, selfish. And there's a reason they call those pictures selfies. Because it's all about you. Not about other people. It used to be when we had Polaroids when we were a kid, we're taking pictures of everybody. It was fun to be the one holding the camera and not be in the pictures. Now we're like, Oh yeah, you can get in here too. Okay, you know, and we're just all about me, 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 me. And so it's created a bunch of people who are self-absorbed so much that we got to put filters to make the pictures look better. You know, it used to be you could choose filters on certain apps, which, never mind. <laughs> Did you know that TikTok automatically filters it whether you want it or not? The reason people so, feel so good looking at their TikToks is because you look amazing in your TikToks because it filters you without what you want. It makes you look great. It, and you know what it's doing? That's not what you look like. That is a fake filtered version of you. That's not you. You can fall in love with that person who doesn't exist. And so we have a culture now of people who are self-obsessed and the whole problem is because we're self-deceived. We are lying to ourselves. Lying to ourselves with our filters, lying to ourselves with all of our likes and comments and whatever. And this goes all the way back to the garden. Oh, God's lying to you. He's holding out on you. God's afraid that if you choose for yourself what you want, that you'll become God like him. And that, that's what Satan said. He said that for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing, and knowing means deciding for yourself what is good and evil. And that's our culture today. I decide what's right for me. You can't tell me what's right. And I'm, I'm not wanting to tell you what's right. The problem is you don't want God telling you what's right and wrong. We want to decide for ourselves. We want to choose our own morality. We want to choose that. And so you know, we go back to, I'm just going to make this really practical, okay? So let's go back to the whole idea of selfies. I want to offer all y'all a 30-day challenge, okay? I want you to do no selfies whatsoever for 30 days. Not one. Not one. And some of you are like, I don't ever even take a selfie. What is a selfie? I have no idea. That's great. Good for you, okay? And, and if you're not into social media, fine. Good for you. God bless you. Your brain is probably still uninfected. But if you, here's what I want you to do. No bragging for 30 days. 
No bragging. Don't, don't tell anybody how great you are or what you did or how you got a raise or a promotion or anything like that or how much better you're a soccer player, your four-year-old, is than all the other kids chasing the ball. Don't, no bragging for 30 days. No selfies for 30 days. You think you do that? To make it practical, you'll see how difficult it is. He says, so the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the scribe asked which one is the greatest commandment. Did you notice Jesus gave him how many? He gave him two. Isn't that interesting that Jesus gave him two? Why did Jesus do that? And here's my summation of it. The proof that you love God is that you love your neighbor. Think about that. The very evidence that you really do love God is that you love your neighbor as yourself. So, well, Gary, I'm struggling in that department of loving my neighbor as myself. Well, guess what? You're struggling to love God. And I'm preaching to me here, okay? You cannot say, oh man, I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, but oh my, I know my neighbor needs help, and I'm really tired right now. It, it doesn't work that way. You, you have to love God and therefore love the one created in God's image. How can a man say, I love God, but not help his neighbor who's right there in front of him? You see, it, also the second reason it's impossible to genuinely love your neighbor without loving God. So, well, well I love my neighbor, I'm just not religious, I don't really love God or whatever. You can't truly love your neighbors yourself unless you're madly in love with the one who created them. The two work hand in glove. They work together. So one person, one teacher asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And that, what story did he share then? Yeah, the good Samaritan. Good for you. This is a Jew is traveling one day. He's gone down the road. And the Bible says he fell among thieves. They took everything he had, including his clothes. They, let, they beat him badly, left him for dead, naked on the side of the road. A religious guy comes by and sees him there, walks around the other way. Doesn't have time for him, but he loves God. <laughs> Another religious guy comes by, same thing. Doesn't love his neighbor as himself, but oh, he claims to love God. But then a, a Samaritan, a mixed breed, mixed race person, whose religion wasn't all right, and Jews couldn't stand these people. He's the one who stops and helps. And he binds up his wounds. He cleans his wounds. He puts them on his donkey. He takes them to the nearest Motel 6. He pays for one month of stay there and food for the guy. Think about it. How much would it cost you to put someone in an inn to, to house them and feed them for 30 days? That's a, that's a lot of money. This guy spent some serious cheddar here helping this guy truly loved his neighbor as himself. Uh, let's just make this super simple. What does that mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It's like, what would I want someone to do for me in this situation? Love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you'd have men to do to you, you do also to them. Um, first of all, you have to know your neighbor. Have you noticed the architecture of homes what is the closest thing to the sidewalk in most houses? The garage. So that people come down the road, they push the button, and before they even turn on the driveway, the garage door is up, they go in, the garage door comes down. There's people on your street, you have no idea who they are. I mean, they're literally a football field away, and you don't know their first name. Me too. Our culture reinforces that. We really need to be the ones who be, that we're Christians that are different. We actually take time to get to know our neighbors. I want to give you something extremely practical here this morning. In fact, you're going to be hearing about this. 
I've been holding on this for like four months, waiting to share it for the right time. And you're going to be hearing about this a lot. And it is this acronym here, BLESS. BLESS, okay? And if you want like to write this down, if you want to take a picture of it, I'll be also texting out this week. These five things are what I, every Christian needs to do to love their neighbor as himself. And you can put it in different forms if you want, but this is super practical. Number one, you begin with prayer. Start praying that God would build a relationship between you and your neighbor. Whether it's the person across the street or three houses down or the person in the next cubicle at work or the guy who works out at the gym with you, whoever it may be, start praying that God, number one, would bring that person in your life. And number two, that God would work on their heart. Because it's not how convincing you are in your presentation, how cool you are, or your Christian t-shirt. It's God working on their heart. So begin with prayer. Number two, and this is going to be hard for most of us, including me, listen. We want to go say, God, give me courage to talk to them. Say, God, give me a heart to listen to them. Hear their story. Hear what they have to say. Um, Rick Warren was at a pastor's conference in New York City and a bunch of people from the gay community protested these pastors are outside, they're marching, and they're saying, you know, all these kind of slurs against them and all that stuff like that. Rick Warren, on one of the breaks, walked outside and went around the building, you know, went out a side entrance, came out, and he saw one of the guys protesting. And he said, hey, how's it going? He said, good, we're out here protesting. He said, really, tell me what you're protesting. He said, cool. He said, wow, that's interesting. He said, he said hey, you got time for a cup of coffee? So he bought him, there was like a vendor there, and he, was, and he said, Let, let's sit out and talk. He said, tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. And this guy began to tell him about how much he hated these people who condemned his lifestyle, and how his lifestyle and all that stuff, and how that he was abused as a child, and how it, all this feels like it's not a choice for him, all this stuff. And he just went on and on. And just poured, and the guy, this total stranger, starts crying with Rick Warren. And Rick Warren listened to the guy for an hour. And then the guy said, well, tell me about you. And he said, well, I'm one of the pastors attending this conference, but it's not what you think it is. I love you. I care about you. I'm so sorry. You've been through so much. And the, guy be, the guys became friends. And six months later, he trusted Christ as Savior. All because Rick Warren was willing to what? Listen. Listen. God has given us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And let every man be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to wrath. We need to, we need to be good listeners. And there's people, there's, there's, man, there's people in our world who are hurting hurting like crazy. They're paying therapists $135 an hour for someone just to listen when Christians should be doing it for free. Number two, number three, E, eat. This is going to be the most practical step. Invite someone out to lunch. Invite a family over your house for dinner, whatever it may be. Now keep this gender safe, okay? I don't think you as a married man should invite the single girl out to work lunch. I don't think that's a good idea at all. You need to try to be guys with guys, girls with girls, or at least families with families. But you need to have a meal together. You ever notice how important meals are in the Bible? And meals are in like every culture? When we went to Ghana, where there's 51% unemployment, people living in poverty, Lauren, what were they doing with their food? Here, here, eat, have some. You know, people just sharing you know, and you, you just see that all over the world where people want to share a meal because that's, that is the true beginning and, and cementing of a friendship. Schedule a meal with someone just to have, that's, that's where you get to do what? The listening part, okay? And then S, serve them. You find out they're moving, hey, I'll be over there. Let me help, let me help, let me box up. Let me blow up the truck. Oh, man, so you're wearing, you have, what kind of surgery do you have on your foot? So you probably need someone to mow your lawn, Right? 
man, I'll be there. You have a lawnmower? I'll just come over. I'll, I'll mow your lawn for you. You find a way to serve them. You see, all throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus and his disciples doing word and work ministry. They're preaching the word, but they're doing good works. See, about 100 years ago, about 110 years ago, what's called German higher criticism came into the United States and it infected churches. And they were saying, well, Jesus was a good teacher, but he didn't really rise from the dead. He really didn't do those miracles. Those miracles are just parables. They're just metaphors. We're just supposed to be good people. And we, what we want to take seriously is the Jesus' commandments to take care of the poor, the widows, the homeless. We need to do that. So liberal churches became very involved in social projects of helping all the needy people. Well, the fundamentalists, which now is a bad word, but all it meant was they believed in the fundamentals of the faith, that the Bible is true, Jesus did do miracles, he did rise from the dead, literally. They started shying away from all that stuff because, well, feeding the poor and the homeless and having orphanages, that's just for liberals. We're going to preach the truth. We're going to preach the truth. We're going to go out. And so they became very powerful in evangelism while the liberal church became very powerful in social gospel. And what they're both wrong. What we're supposed to be doing is loving our neighbor, helping our neighbor, mowing our neighbor's lawn, taking meals to them when someone dies, doing all those things so that we can share the gospel. You see, the, the wor works give us a platform to share the word. It needs to be both. It's two sides of the same coin. And thankfully, balance is coming back to a lot of the churches in America. But we need to serve your neighbor. Number, and then this is all leads up to this, to where you can share your story and God's story. Hey, I wanted to share something really important with you. You know, when I was 32 years old, uh, I went to a church, a friend invited me there, and I was going through a really hard time. And I heard for the first time, this is not my story, I'm just making up a story here, uh, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Jesus changed my life. Can I tell you more about his story? And you share the gospel. But what you've done is you began with prayer. You actively listened to what they had to say. You sat down, had a meal or two or three with them. You found ways to serve them so that you could find a way to share your story with them. Are you up for this? <laughs> this is what we're here on earth to do. We're here to bless our, our, our neighbor. So you'll be hearing more about this in the future. Okay, so what is this scribe's response? Jesus answers the question, as Jesus does always, perfectly. And he says, you are right. I'm not sure how to read this. Hey, God, you're right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. Or, or, but I, th I want to give the guy a little more credit than that. It's like, everybody up to this point is like, Jesus, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. Jesus, you're wrong. We want to kill you, whatever. He's like, you know what? And, and, there's, and there's, there's a crowd standing around. His peers are there. Scribes and Pharisees who've been trying to find a way to kill Jesus. And this guy goes, you're right. And if I could add, I don't care what any of y'all think. <laughs> He's right. We're the ones that are wrong. He says, you're right, teacher, rabbi. He said, you, you truly have said he is one. Now watch what he does here. He, he actually, this guy knows his stuff. In, in two short sentences, he, he's going to make five scriptural Old Testament references. He, he, he was referring to Deuteronomy 6.4 when he says God is only one, not polytheism. And there's no other besides him. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And he says, and you, you said to love God, love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength. Now he's still quoting from another verse of Deuteronomy. And to love your neighbor as your oneself. 
he's quoting from Leviticus 19, and he says, and all this is much more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, quoting from Hosea. Boom, 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 boom. Just quoting from a whole bunch of references there. So this guy knows what he's saying. He, he's not just a, a knucklehead who's walked off the, the street here. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, so he's, he's correct. And how many, how many conversations has Jesus had at this point where people was like, in fact, who did he just tell? He did a chiastic structure, for those of you who remember what that is. Previously, he started off with saying, this is why you're wrong, and you guys are just plain wrong. <laughs> and that's the way he ended it. He just told the previous group, you guys are plain wrong. He's like, hey, guess what? You've answered wisely. But then he says this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not there yet. You're closer than these guys. You're this close. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. For years they've been asking Jesus questions, trying to trap him. Have they succeeded yet? Not once. This guy asks an honest question, gets a great answer, and now he's close. But what does he lack? He needs to make a decision. And we don't know whether he did or didn't. We, we know there was another guy just like him about a month prior to this. A rich young ruler came to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing his heart, knowing that his idol was money and all the stuff they could buy, he says, you know what you need to do? This isn't for everybody. What you need to do is you need to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then, then let's talk. And the Bible says the guy went away sad because he was really rich. Okay? Let me ask you a question. What is your idol that's keeping you from being a follower of Christ? And that, up at this point, they've been asking questions, trying to trap them. And they're like, we're done. We're going to plan B now. Judas, you still want to betray this guy? Let's just take him prisoner in the middle of the night. Let's kill him. And that, that's where they're going to go to next here, coming up real soon. So he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. There may be people in this room this morning that you know about Jesus like this scribe, you know some Bible. He knew a lot of Bible. And you're right there, but you've not crossed that line of faith. You've not taken that step saying, Lord Jesus, here's my life. You gave your life for me. I'm going to give my life to you. I believe that you died for all my sins, that you buried them all on the ground. On the third day, you literally rose again. And that's my only hope. My hope is not in me keeping the Ten Commandments because Lord, no, I, I've tried and failed. My hope is not in me getting baptized because that that's not what the Bible teaches, that baptism saves. It's not me giving a lot of stuff away. It's what you did on the cross. And I have trust and I put my faith in that. In, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that here's my life, Lord. Be the Lord of my life, Jesus. And you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. He died for your sins, was buried, rose again. When you do those, the two sides of one coin there, you will be saved. And here's why. He explains it more in verse 10. He says, for with your heart you believe and you are justified. The word justified is just like just if I had never sinned. It's just like everything is wiped clear. And with the mouth, when you confess Jesus as Lord, you are saved. Have you made that decision? I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And close your eyes with me here this morning. And I want to ask all God's people to be praying for hearts to be open and the Holy Spirit to work on lives. You may be here this morning and you're just like this guy. You are not far from the kingdom. But not far is not in. Not far is still just outside. This is not horseshoes or hand grenades where it counts to be close. 
You're either in the kingdom or you're not. You either are a follower of Christ or you're not. You are either saved or you're not. You've either been born again or you haven't. You can do that today. You can put your faith in Christ and you can trust him to save you from all your sins. Father, thank you so much for loving us. I pray, Lord, for one or two here this morning, maybe several who've been religious, but they've never trusted you to save them. Lord, I pray that they would invite you right now to do just that, and that they would make it a very personal decision, not one that they've been pressured into. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us the truth so that we can understand it. And we pray that we would live it. Help us to bless our neighbors and to do all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, hey, if, you have a, uh, if you've made that decision, man, I would love to hear from you. Call me, text me, talk to me after church. Here's my cell phone number. All right. We're going to have a time of question and answer. <clears throat> and actually, a lot of questions have already come in. Amanda, would you come help me with that? And you can text those in now, anytime. If you're watching online from home, text your questions in. And, um, and if you're here in the house, you can text them in. Or if you want... You can um, ask them here in person. Or just raise your hand to do it the old-fashioned way if you like. So there's the first one for us. As a believer, I know prayer is important because it's a conversation with God. And I instinctively agree with others when they say that prayer works. I've seen God do wondrous things that I can see, that I can see are connected with prayer. But I don't have confidence that I know why or how it works. Okay. So, yeah, it, that's... A mystery on several levels because even though God knows what we want before we even ask, Jesus says, he still wants us to ask. And the only analogy I can give, and it's probably a poor one, is like when your child needs something and wants something, but you want them to come up to and say the magic word and say, please, can I have it? Yes, you may have it. You want them to go through the process because the asking is what builds the relationship. If you just keep handing kids things without them even asking, they're never trained to build that relationship. So God wants you and me to be totally dependent on him to where sometimes he puts us in situations where we're thirsty, so we ask for something to drink, where we're hungry, so we ask, because he wants to build the connection, and it's a reminder that we're totally dependent on, on him. That's why Jesus said, when you, when you pray, pray after this manner, our Father, the Father is the one who supplies everything in the household, who is in heaven, which is the place of ultimate authority to supply everything we need, Right? Give us this day our daily bread. We know that every single day we're dependent on you, Lord. That's what God wants, is that every single day and every single hour we're dependent on him. So that's how that's the purpose of prayer. Not to change God's mind, so okay, I'll give it to you, but to change our mind to where we want what he wants. So that's a good question. That's, that's, uh, my summary is, I'm sure, weak. Uh, they write books on prayer because of this question. I agree not all sin is equal, but if you murder a lot of people and accept Jesus, you go to heaven. If you only steal a pencil and you do everything else perfect in your life, do you think God would overlook the pencil theft and reward the almost perfect individual into heaven because it was petty? So that's a hypothetical question. There's danger with hypotheticals because none of them are, most of them aren't true. This one obviously is nowhere near from true. There's nobody on this planet who's just stolen the pencil and that's the only they've earned wrong. But I'll still answer the question. Okay, so um, the, ans- the question, the answer is, no, God would not overlook it. All sin has to have a consequence and a punishment because there's a whole lot more than just taking a pencil. 
It is total disrespect for the other person that I know you have stuff that belongs to you, but I don't care. I want it. And I remember one time, I remember where I was. I was thinking, some kid took something that belonged somewhere else. I can't remember if there was a camp or where. And I said, hey, you can't take that. That belongs to me. And the kid goes, but I want it. I'm like, yeah, but it's not yours, but I want it. And just that incredible selfishness that the toy wasn't hardly worth anything. But it was the selfishness behind the theft that God's looking at. And that selfishness is, is worse of a crime than the actual action. But again, let's get back to real life and away from hypothetical. There's no one who's done just that. Um, and there's no one who's done all the arrest that's right. You know, the, um, keeping all the commandments. None of us do that without the power of the Holy Spirit to do with that. Because even religious people, and Jesus had his biggest problem with the religious people, they are doing what they're doing to impress God and say, God, you have to accept me. And God's like, that, that's the kind of arrogance that needs to go to hell. But again, God doesn't send people to hell. Hell is our choice. The, earth, the whole planet has said, God, we don't want you. We don't need you. We want to do life ourselves. And God's like, okay. When you stand before him in judgment, he'll say, hey, you wanted to do life without me. So there you go. You will be away from me for all eternity. So who gave you the breath that's in your lungs? I did, but you don't want that, right? Who gave you the sunshine? I did, but you don't want me. You can't separate what I give you from who I am. So hell is everything that's good taken away. Okay, And it's our choice because you can't say, God, I want your sunshine. I want your blessings. I want the job that I have. I want the house I live in, but I don't want you. God is patient with now. He, call, he calls it to, to reign on the just and the unjust. But someday he will give you what you want. And that is nothing to do with him. So everything he will take away and that's where hell, some people say it was hell, a literal burning flames. I believe yes, but let's just say it's not. A metaphor, if, if flames are just a metaphor, what is a metaphor? It is a small picture of something much bigger. So if hell is not a literal burning flames, it is much worse than that. So anyway, um, but why would someone not in this situation not want to accept Christ as their Savior for the forgiveness of the pen? <laughs> Except if it was for pride. That's a long answer. Is that all? Okay, any other questions? So context is everything. The, the book is Galatians. What were the Galatians struggling with? They were struggling with adding good works to their salvation. You see, the, the, when Paul started the Galatian church from scratch. And then when he moved on, some false teachers came in and said, yes, you do need to trust in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, but you also need to trust in the Levitical law. So everybody needs to be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, no, no. You don't have to do anything. It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus by itself is everything. So they were trying to add works to their flesh, literally to their flesh, to the circumcision of the flesh. He's like, no, no, no. Your flesh doesn't mean anything. You, you crucify the flesh. When you accept Christ as Savior, you say, I am dead. Dead people have no rights. Okay? And I am resurrected with Christ. I am a new creature in Christ. That old flesh has passed away. I'm a new creature. So that's what it is. And then, of course, we are saved, but then we still struggle with the flesh because our spirit man is saved and perfect, but our flesh wants battle. So we crucify, like, like in, also in Galatians, right? 2.22, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So every day we have to say, no flesh, I'm not listening to you, you're dead. I'm alive in Christ. All right, any others come in? All right, good, let's stand. And we're going to read a scripture to be dismissed together. Let me find it here.
Oh, there it is. Thank you. All right, let's read one more. You can't read enough scripture, amen? <laughs> it's the best part of the Sunday. Everything else is my opinion. All right, Jude 24 and 25. Now let's read it together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now forever. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Thank you.